My guest today is Dr. Warren Farrell, who is a New York Times bestselling author, written many different books. He's been on many different TV shows. I'm talking Oprah Winfrey, Phil Donahue, wrote a, a book called The Myth of Male Power, as well as Boy, The Boy Crisis. He's got millions of views online, and he's very comfortable making others uncomfortable. And I would even take it as far as he's very comfortable sometimes unintentionally or intentionally pissing other people off. So with that being said, Doc, thank you so much for being a guest on Valuetainment. Thank you very much. Um, yes, speaking empathetically about boys and men uh, does apparently make some people uncomfortable. Why do you think that is, by the way? Why, why do you think, uh, I mean, even an open-ended question with that, why do you think some people get uncomfortable when you talk about, you know, I, I don't know what university it was you were speaking at, People were rioting against you, protesting against you. They were not happy about you speaking. Some people just wanted to hear your argument, but they tried to silence your message. Why do you think this message of the boy crisis, you know, some people have a hard time listening to? Well, to answer that question, we're going to have to go deep quickly, uh, which is that historically and biologically, uh, men were programmed to be disposable. And we would be programmed to be disposable to be uh, able to save the lives of women. So every generation had its war, and every generation had some version of Uncle Sam saying, "We need you." Um, and and the and we we all knew as males that you know Uncle Joe, who was in the Marines, was the respected mm -hmm. um, person in the family, and we wanted to be. You know, we were being criticized by our parents. We wanted to be respected. So we accept the social bribe, what I call the social bribe of being called hero um, to get that type of respect. And women learn to fall in love with the officer and the gentleman, not the private and the pacifist. Uh, so we knew we would be, if we were willing to risk our lives to save women, to save children, to save other men, um, save the country, uh, th that we would be more loved. We would be uh, the person that was you know, fallen in love with. Um, by the woman who wanted the officer and the gentleman and not that private and the pacifist. Uh, we learned on some level that Lois Lane had no interest in Clark Kent, but the same person in Superman uniform, uh, what she fell in love with. And so we, uh, so when, when men complain, uh, women are programmed to fall in love with alpha men, not whining men. And so when men complain, it feels to women like a, uh, uh, let's say a chalk on a blackboard, um, scratching uh, nails, <laughs> scratching on a blackboard. Uh, it feels it doesn't feel right to women. Women instinctively withdraw from men who express what concerns them. Uh, they want them to be there to deal with what concerns the women. And so, um, and the and the the process of becoming successful as a man. Um, is inversely related to the process to, of, of becoming successful in love. And so since we have a lot of entrepreneurs on the line, I'll be glad to take that one at a much deeper level. But uh, that's the, you know, the underlying biological and historical background as to why we don't, we're not as empathetic to boys and men complaining or expressing their hurt, their pain, their feelings, their fears. Now, you know, to go, to go and I want to unpack that, but to go back where the audience kind of knows your history, you're not somebody that started thinking like this your entire life. You were originally part of the uh, uh, feminist movement. Matter of fact, I think there's a picture with you and Gloria Steinem, who was the spokesperson or spokeswoman or even the leader for the American feminist movement in America. And uh, you were kind of going in that direction. Can you kind of walk us through your history and what made you flip and switch? 
Yes, first of all, I don't feel I have flipped and switched, but it's definitely true that um, I was the only man ever elected three times to the board of directors of the National Organization for Women in New York City. And I spoke all around the world on women's issues. And, um, and my income came completely from speaking around the world on women's issues. And I, I suppose I was probably the, um, the best known male spokesperson for women's issues. And so, I, yes, I was very close to Gloria Steinem, Betty Friedan, and all the initial leaders of the women's movement. And I think things began to, uh, and so I, I never considered, I always considered myself, I would say, a, gender, a person in favor of a gender liberation movement. I never wanted women to be criticizing men or women's movement to be focused on criticizing men. I never wanted a men's movement to be focused on criticizing women. I always wanted both sexes to understand that for the first time in human history, uh, we had an opportunity to not be dominated by not patriarchy, but because I don't think we were dominated by patriarchy, we were dominated by a need to survive. And to survive, um, women and men in most societies played roles. Women's role was essentially raise children. Men's role was essentially raise money. Um, women uh, didn't feel that they would get much social praise. So uh, they had social bribes to be uh, mothers and to raise those children and to do that well. And men had social bribes that you weren't worth much of anything if you didn't uh, either participate in the possibility of being disposable in war or being disposable in the workplace, either by um, working the hazardous jobs or by um, working 60, 70, 80 hours a week where you might die at the desk from stress and overwork. Uh, but your job was to earn enough money to be able to support not just your wife and your children. And so you didn't think much of yourself and other people didn't think much of you um, if you're an unemployed person living in your family's basement. Um, and hoping that a woman would save you, but you were really good looking and uh, sweet and kind and had a good emotional intelligence. So then maybe let me ask the question in a different way. How so much, I, oh, I'm how, sorry. I didn't do the second part of that question, which is, you know, what made me evolve from that? And I, yeah, I but, but, but you, said, you said not much has. So let me let me ask the question in a different way. So sure. if you've been the same from the 60s and 70s till today, then it would only be the right question to ask, has the movement of feminism changed from what it originally was to what it is today? The answer is three answers to that. Yes, yes, and yes. <laughs> Got it. So the, the original focus in the women's movement was um, that there was, uh, that you know, uh, Helen Reddy, I am woman, I am strong. Um, it has increasingly become, I am woman, I've been wronged. Hashtag me too, I've been wronged. Um, women, and then, and then uh, there was always an anti-male dimension to the feminist movement, even in the early days. My former wife, who is a, a very wonderful woman, um, said to me, um, you know, you don't want to get involved with the women's movement. It's really anti, a lot of anti-male. And my response was, well, it may be anti-male for a while, but I don't think that that will um, increase um, as men start listening to it and, and men and women, men and women's roles tend to, to change and to modify. I think both sexes' roles will change and modify. However, I do think men's roles will change much more slowly than women's roles will change. And my former wife um, said, was that because you feel men have the power? I said, no, they don't have the power to speak up about the limitations of their roles. Uh, we, we, are, we are programmed to protect women and to 
to be able to do what women ask for. And right now, women are the first ones speaking up um, to be able to be more flexible in who they want to be, uh, to be able to, if, when children come, uh, women express um, the, uh, they have three choices. Um, choice number one is to be full-time with the children if they're married and middle-class or above. Um, choice number two is to be full-time with the workplace. Um, choice number three is to be um, part work part-time. Um, and men also have, you know, say, well, we have three options too. And option one is to work full-time. Option two is to work full-time. Option three is to work full-time. Or if they're a working class men to work two um, jobs. And if they're a, um, a, a corporate executive, it's to, um, or um, in, involved in, in uh, their middle and upper middle class men, it's often to work more hours at the same job or to become more successful. So a person who was a local salesperson for Product X uh, might feel um, much more inclined to accept a, a position as national salesperson but as a national salesperson, he finds himself um, leaving his, um, experiencing the father's catch-22. And the father's catch-22 is learning to love his family by being away from the love of his family. And, um, and so he um, then feels he, he's, he's, he's doing this increased amount of money earning to be able to give his, family's, his family options that he never had. He wants to buy a, um, a better home and a better neighborhood with a better school system for his kids um, and a better home for both his wife and his kids. And, uh, and so he gets caught up in that, but then spends less and less time for the kids and wife that he really loves and he's working for until sometimes he does things that he learns, he learns things to be successful at work that are the opposite of what it takes to be successful in love. And he doesn't know that he's doing that. And the wife and the wife and children don't know that he's doing that. But you know, I'll be happy to share with you what that tension is uh, that often leads to many successful men um, ending up um, getting uh, divorced or not getting divorced because their wife needs the security economically that he provides, but he senses underneath uh, that his wife is really hanging around to, to, to love the children and have that security rather than feeling loved himself. Well, let, let me let me ask this. Do so common reasons why women get a divorce, common reasons why men get a divorce. It's a different in my family. I, I've seen both. Uh, my dad filed a divorce against my mom. So it was more from that side. But from your experience, what are reasons why men file for a divorce over women filing for a divorce? Well, bigger picture first, um, um, when women have a college education, uh, they are 92 percent of the people who are in, uh, file for divorce when they don't have an education, much like they've only graduated from high school as opposed to college, um, the, the percentages are lower. Um, so the, Why so? so one, what's that? Why so? Um, uh, because when a woman has economic security, she no, needs the man less for economic security. She senses that if she sues, she, if she's the plaintiff, she has some advantages legally that um, that allow her to be to make it likely that she will both get um, a significant amount of economic security in the future, and will also probably have the children. He ha she basically has the right to the children. He has to fight for the children, and he has to if he fights for the children, it will cost him maybe one hundred and twenty-five thousand to a quarter million dollars to fight for the children. And uh, that, that oftentimes uh, it just breaks his heart. So men and women who, go, who are going through family court 
men often get so depressed by the process that they're eight times as likely as the mother is uh, to commit suicide. Um, and so it's, it's a very um, challenging process because the, the court system is really designed at, at its current um, um, state um, to um, when a woman, uh, most judges feel that children do best with both parents after divorce. That's accurate, and most judges agree with that. However, when a woman says, "I'm afraid of my husband," not just physically, but you know, he might he shouts at me, and uh, he raises his voice, and she gives a, cu a couple of examples of that. Then the judge often fears um, have, um, giving the custody equally to both sexes. Uh, because if there's one time out of a thousand um, that that in fact you know, that man um, is violent or uh, physically abuses the woman or just uh, overly shouts at the woman and she records it on a video cam, uh, that he feel he he becomes he or she the judge becomes vulnerable to um, being um, losing um, her his position as a judge. Okay, so so why do men? file the divorce and you know again I, I, you hear stories about women why are some reasons why men file a divorce yeah. well first of all both sexes file for divorce largely because neither sex feels heard that is the single biggest problem the achilles heel of all human beings is our inability to handle personal criticism without becoming defensive and that's true of both men and women uh, when men do file for divorce, it's often because they um, they feel that they just can't take it anymore. Uh, they feel that their alcoholism or their um, uh, ideations of suicide or their the, the feeling that the, uh, the mother really doesn't like him anymore, not even just not love him, but not like him. Um, and and then often and, and then usually somewhere along the way, particularly if he's an executive or a corporate person, uh, and he moves around a lot and owns his own business. He might go from um, branch to branch of his of his business, and eventually meet somebody that really he feels respects him. Oftentimes, his own secretary might um, be much more respectful of him than his wife, and um, and so he feels like there's somebody else that can love me, that does understand me, that that is proud of me, um, and um, and verse, and then he has an affair with her. Um, and um, he, uh, and and that leads uh, to him feeling that, um, and, and then usually the new woman wants uh, wants more than just an affair, wants some security, wants some lifetime intimacy. He does too, and so that accounts for the eight um, percent of people who are men that file for divorce usually, and or the greater percentage of the uh, woman has um, um, less of, a, of of an education and is less likely to file. Um, then um, that starts increasing to about 20, 25% of males filing for divorce. So, so Doc, uh, you know, the boy crisis, I mean, the, the, the uh, crisis of education, crisis of mental health, crisis of fathering, crisis of purpose, you know, you, you talk about this, and then I saw one of your speeches where you're talking about at the age of nine, boys and girls' suicide rate is the same. At 10 or 14, boys are twice the chance of committing suicide than uh, girls do, twice the amount of suicides as boys, as girls do. 15 to 19, it's four times the amount, boys to girls. 20 to 25, it's six times the amount, boys to girls. So 
if you don't, if you don't mind unpacking the boys' crisis, I have some follow-ups. Whether anything to do with the upbringing has to do with the divorce, but I'd like to start with the boy crisis first. Yes, when I first submitted my proposal to um, my publisher for the boy crisis book, um, I had ten causes of the boy crisis that I was going to write a chapter in each. Um, and then the more I studied it, the more I realized that the single most important cause by a long shot was that basically the boy crisis resides where dads do not reside. Um, and when boys don't have, when, when usually um, when there's one parent um, in the game um, and the other parent minim, minimally involved or not at all involved, it's usually the mother that's the primary parent and the, the dad that's the secondary parent. And in those situations, the girls have challenges in more than, the daughters have challenges in more than 50 different areas. Um, but the boys have challenges in more than 50 different areas also, but their challenges are more intense. They're more likely to commit suicide than the, than the girls are by the, by the data that you just gave. They're more likely to move into depression when you, when you measure depression um, by male standards, which is almost completely unheard of as opposed to just the female measures of depression. Almost all of our measures of depression are female measures. The boys are much more likely to become addicted to video games. Um, girls and boys both play video games. Video games are very healthy at a, at a, at a reasonable proportional amount of level to the rest of life. Um, but it, when it comes to addiction to video games, boys are far more likely to be addicted to video games than, than girls are. Um, boys are far more likely to be addicted to drugs, to alcohol. Um, they, their depression leads them to feeling that they're, they're worthless and they become ashamed of themselves and they fear that they're going to be rejected by girls. So they're much more likely to turn to pornography because pornography is basically access to a variety of attractive women without fear of rejection at a price they can afford. Um, and so guys, as they, as they don't do as well in school, uh, they don't feel as admired by girls. Girls tend to date winners, not losers. And so they feel that they're a loser and that they they fear that, that they can't risk a rejection because they know that the, the girls they're most attracted to are dating the quarterbacks or the student body president or some of the guy that's really sharp um, and um, on the basketball team, et cetera. And so they start um, fearing, uh, becoming introspective, becoming withdrawn, becoming rebellious, becoming... Um, um, very coercive to their parents, and they feel badly about themselves, and that leads them into depression, into suicide, into drinking, into drugs, into death from opioid overdoses, and into addiction to pornography. Um, and so, and that addiction to pornography is very dangerous because what happens for, for boys uh, who are addicted to pornography is that, you know, the first time um, they, they are watching pornography and just watching a woman, um, an attractive woman take her clothes off is really exciting for them. But after they've watched that 15 times, it loses the, the excitement. And so they have to keep upping the ante until uh, they're um, requiring things like um, the only way they can get turned on is a woman doing something like um, um, letting him come in her face. And so, but, but then they finally get a woman that is really interested in being with them. And the woman um, is, um, and they get together and she, and he wants to do that. And she goes, ah, you know, and withdraws because she, she feels treated like a porn object because she's being treated like a porn object. 
And so that's really um, very um, challenging um, for the woman and therefore is challenging for the, um, the guy as well. Have you ever spoken to Pamela Anderson? I have never spoken to Pamela Anderson, no. I think it may not be a bad idea to speak to her because one of the things she talks to her boys about is when uh, she says, sometimes when I would go home with a guy, they would try to have sex with me as if they watched the porn. And she said, I taught my boys, don't have sex with girls with what you see in porn because that's not how they like it. I think it's a very good conversation for the two of you guys to have, but that's a completely different subject. That's just yes. a suggestion. And, and for I, would, so, I would agree with her 100%. Yeah, so going back to, uh, going back to what we're talking about here with porn, uh, uh, the, the visual you gave was very helpful. Uh, I'm sure it uh, inspired a lot of people to make some right adjustments in their lives. Uh, uh, so, <laughs> but uh, going back to this, so you talk about fatherless boys, okay? And statistics we see nowadays and the consequences of it. One, uh, what is the number between fatherless boys and motherless boys? Is it a 98 to two, like the boys that are raised without a mother? How small of a percentage is that? Well, we don't even have a lot of data on it. Yes, um, boy, boys are far more likely to be raised by their mom than their dad. It's about a nine to one ratio. Nine to one ratio. Okay, so so yes. let me let me go a little bit more deeper with down the question. So so boys. Okay, so we know that we know that's going to be taking place. Is there an event that incentivize incentivize uh, uh, you know mothers to say I don't need a man to help me raise my kids. I can do it on my own. Or has this number nine to one been historically the same where we've had a lot of you know, fatherless, you know, homes where boys are raised without a father. Is there is there a trend that took place? Very good uh, question. And uh, the answer is in the 53 largest developed nations, with the emphasis on the word developed, um, in developed nations, survival is not as big of an issue in the middle and upper middle class as it is in less developed nations. When survival is not as big an issue, the society starts giving more wow. permission for there to be uh, divorces if you want that, because you're moving from survival, what you need, to what you want. And if two people are unhappy, most societies that are developed allow some permission for divorce. Uh, the churches are usually not as, as significant a role. They play a, a role, um, but they're, they're, the pressure to to not be dis, uh, to be disgraced at yourself if you uh, if you get a divorce is not as great. Um, so you have uh, uh, so in the end um, you have more freedom to raise children um, by yourself if you're a woman. So in the United States at the present moment, 53% of um, women who have children who are under 30, 53% have have uh, children without being married. Um, and in general, uh, without the under 30 part put in, 42% uh, of women in the United States at, at the present moment who have children or have children without being married. Most of the time, even among those um, who, ha who have, who are not married, but they're living with a man at the time that they have children, those relationships last on average about three years. Um, and then usually after that three years, uh, the children um, have minimal or no contact with the dad uh, when there's a split up. And so the boy crisis resides among those boys who have minimal or no contact with the dad. And, even, and they've had that contact for the first few years, but then they feel abandoned and, and lost by that dad. And boys, you know, the girls at least have the role model of a mother as to what it is to be a, a, a female. 
but the boys don't have the role model of a father. Or if they have a role model of the father, that father after the, the mother and father break up, or the father is often bad-mouthed by the mother. He's very narcissistic. Mm. That's why we broke up. He's very self-centered and he's very, he's not reliable. He's not, um, um, he, you know, he's a liar, things like that. And the boy begins to look in the mirror and wor worry that maybe he's looking in the mirror because he's a narcissist or he's, you know, he remembers yeah. lying to his, a friend of his, or he may remembers being unreliable in this way or that way. And he begins to fear that the qualities that the, that the father is being condemned for that led to the breakup of the mother and father are also qualities that he has. And But he can't talk to the father about that because yeah. that'll only destabilize the relationship when the father and mother have a fight. Can't talk to the mother about that for the same destabilization fear. And so he just shuts up about that, keeps that inside of himself, and it becomes a problem that leads to, you know, depending on the personality of the boy, it either leads to minor problems or very major psychological problems that, that oftentimes boys don't go to the psychologist and they don't work those things out. And so among divorced families, the challenge is even greater. Um, because the, the the children are often seeing the mother and father argue. Um, the, the arguments are not compassionate arguments um, where, gee, I heard you say this. Um, tell me more about what you said. Did I distort anything about, um, here's what I heard you say. Did I distort anything? Am I missing anything? Is there anything more that you want to add, sweetheart? Uh, tell me more. That is not the conversation that the, the children of divorce tend to hear. And so for the past 30 years, I've been conducting couples communication workshops around the country because I wanted to prevent the divorces. I, I wanted children to have parents that had happy relationships, positive relationships that, that, had, that had differences of opinion, but they knew how to hear each other to work those differences through. And so therefore there would, as a result of that, be fewer divorces and therefore there would, as a result of that, um, be fewer boys that didn't have uh, very much father involvement. And so um, I've sort of gone back to the root cause of the boy crisis, which really wasn't um, boys alone, but it was uh, families breaking up, children, boys not having a dad to work with and not having good communication role models um, in their parents. And therefore those boys and the daughters of these, of these divorced families are far more likely to have divorces themselves uh, when and and bad communication um, methods as they grow up. Do do our taxes? Does our tax system benefit uh, single mothers having more kids without relying on a husband? Just to say, you know, if I have another kid, I'm going to make an additional X Y Z amount of money per year. So I don't need another man because I'm going to get a benefit that's coming from the government. It, does that take into account, because again, as somebody that's been in the financial industry, all I'm looking for is data to show me what flip. Did a tax incentive yeah. flip? Did a new program flip? Did a new method of teaching in our educational system flip? What was it that caused this to become uh, the number that it is today? The main flip was the option of developed nations that didn't have Got to it. worry about survival. The second flip was the government became a substitute husband when it started to make um, laws saying that if a woman uh, didn't have a man that she was living with or was not married to a man, uh, that she could get uh, money from the government. Um, and so the government became a substitute husband. And this was institutionalized through many, many programs 
like women, infants, and children, which makes it clear that it's not men, infants, and children. It's not couples, infants, and children. It's not infants whose, whose parents don't make enough money. Uh, so particularly in um, inner city communities where, that were poor, oftentimes, and particularly in African-American Black communities, uh, there was oftentimes the, the, the Black male uh, was not making um, a lot of money. And in those cases when he wasn't, um, the woman and the black male, um, both the, usually a black woman and a black male man calculated that there was um, a, an inadequate amount of money that was coming from the father to support the children effectively. So she um, made sure that the father did not live with her. And so then, um, so she could get the money from the government. Um, and that money came in multiple forms, but not just through the women, infants and children forms. And, um, and so the woman felt that the best way to protect her children uh, was to not have the father around. But it turned out and, uh, that, that that was the worst way to protect her children because um, the children without, children without a dad are most vulnerable. Now we've known this since 1965 when the Moynihan Report came out. And uh, Daniel Patrick Moynihan was a sociologist, a US Senator, a Department of Labor, um, a cabinet executive under both Republicans and Democratic presidents. Um, and he was asked because he had such qualifications to do a report of what was created crime in the inner city. And everybody was going, oh my God, this is gonna end up you know, blaming crime on blacks because we know that in the inner city, very frequently blacks commit crimes. And uh, what came out was a very different report than many people expected. Uh, which was that the crimes were not created by blacks per se, that crimes were created by the, that those people in the inner city who were being raised uh, without debt. Uh, and that at the time in 1965 was 25% of the males in the inner city, uh, almost all blacks um, uh, that, that were be, uh, among black males, uh, among black families, 25% uh, of the children were being raised without their dads in 1965. Today, the percentage is more than 70% among black males. Um, among Caucasian males at the 1965, it was only 3.2% of Caucasian males that were being raised without their dads. Today, it is 35% of Caucasian males being raised without their dads. So the Caucasian males being raised without their dads today is higher than it was for black males in 1965. And we're seeing a huge amount of dysfunction among both black males and Caucasian males today. Um, and much more among Caucasian males than we were seeing among black males in the, um, the mid 60s. Do we know why? Yes because the lack of father involvement leads many boys to feel that, that they, um, they, they don't usually have postponed gratification. Uh, so I'll give, I'll give you an example um, of what happens. So uh, moms and dads tend to set boundaries the same way. They both care about their children. They say, sweetie, you can't have your ice cream until you finish your peas. Children tend to, to test boundaries the same way. Um, they want to have as few peas as possible before they get their ice cream. Uh, the difference between moms and dads, on average, and sometimes this is reversed, uh, the roles are reversed. On average, the, the um, difference is that 
when the child says to mom, you know, I don't want to have my peas. I had a bad day in school today. I was bullied by somebody or the mom and dad are divorced and the mom feels guilty about the divorce and feels this, the child must be very stressed. Her empathy tends to step forward about, uh, and she says to herself some version of, I'm, I'm not going to get into a big argument about a few peas. This is ridiculous. Now, when they're married and the father does get in, enforces they can't have the peas until the, the, um, the uh, they can't have the ice cream until they have the peas, uh, the mother feels that the dad is being uh, insensitive. Uh, when they're divorced and the, the children are going over to the father's house, the father says, I'm sorry, we had a deal here. Uh, the deal is you can't have your ice cream until you finish your peas. And the child goes, you're so mean, you know, mom, it lets me have my peas when I've had a bad day like this. And so with the dad, the children learn that they have to focus on finishing their peas in order to get their ice cream. And because dad's not going to give in and empathy will not, uh, the, the, the child cannot coerce or manipulate the father's emotions in order to get the ice cream uh, before he finishes the peas. Uh, whereas with mom, the child is learning Ah, I can manipulate a better deal here. Uh, mom says, okay, I know, you're, you know you've had a bad day, so I'll tell you what, just have half the peas. And so the child realizes, ah, this is negotiable. So it begins to try to have half the half a piece. And, um, and, then, and then the mom says, okay, I'm again, the child at least tried, it's had, they've had a bad day, okay. So now the child is learning that with mom, I can manipulate better deals. And so the skill set that the child with mom often learns is that of manipulation, but also a lack of respect for the mom's boundaries. And so the mom finds herself repeating and repeating the boundaries um, and, um, and where dad, um, after a while, does not have to repeat it because dad's made clear uh, that when the child does not finish the peas, uh, there's no ice cream. So the child learns to focus on doing what he or she needs to do in order to get what she or he wants, the, uh, the ice cream. And so what the child is learning with the dad is postponed gratification. And as most people know, postponed gratification is the single biggest predictor of success or failure. So the boy without postponed gratification goes to school, um, has homework to finish, but is much more likely to get sidetracked by an invitation from a friend to play a video game. And so, or he has a real great uh, potential as a basketball or football player or as an actor or as a musician, but he doesn't have the discipline um, to, uh, to become one of the best actors, musicians, basketball players. Um, so uh, other kids beat him out uh, that are even less talented than he is for that role. And he begins to feel ashamed of himself and sometimes depressed. And again, no girls are interested in the losers, they're interested in the winners. And so he starts turning in on himself and, be and becoming withdrawn. And his own only friends are the online friends and he doesn't have real friends that will help him move or do something when it really counts. And so this leads to depression and in worst case scenarios, uh, the increase in suicides. And a lot of that comes from not having a dad that is there to guide him, to help him take risks, to help him be disciplined at doing what he wants to do. Uh, moms are very good at helping their children, both girls and boys, identify their talents and pursue them. But very frequently, the, the children without a dad does not have the discipline to successfully become outstanding at the most fulfilling things. If you want to be an engineer or um, you need um, 
you need that discipline. But also, if you want to be an artist, a writer, a musician, if you want to ever make a living at it, uh, or a basketball player and join the NBA, you've got to be extremely um, disciplined. Uh, that was great. So on your points, you've written here, you know, in the book, The Christ of Education, Christ of Mental Health, Christ of Father, Christ of uh, Fathering, Purpose, all that stuff. But how much, how much of um, the crisis, I know you said you had 10, so I don't know the other six, what they were, but how much do you think the role of media and movies play in uh, who this kid wants to be? Meaning, uh, I'm growing up, who's the hero? If the hero to me was like this strong military general, uh, you know what, when I grow up, I want to be General Patton or whatever. You know, when I grow up, I want to be like, you know, uh, a John F. Kennedy. I want to be like Reagan. I want to be like whoever it is. I want to be like, uh, you know, um, Clint Eastwood. I mean, he's a man's man. You know, I want to be like this guy. How, how much has the media change with portraying who the ideal male is that is loved, admired and respected and does that have a big influence on how boys adjust to get that necessary attention like oh my gosh today's boys are a little bit more silly I'm going to be silly because that gets the right attention versus man today's men are strong I'm going to be strong because that gets the respect I want do you think media plays a big role in that yeah media does play an important a very important role um, and we still have the same basic image of men uh, today um, on one level, uh, that is the man that the woman is interested in and attracted to is some version of Superman. However, the images of the father on TV are the Archie Bunkers, are the, um, you know, are the fathers that are just, um, that are the, the, that are goofballs. And the, um, and the and an analysis of advertising on TV where one parent is focused, at, um, uh, it looks like a jerk or looks like a bumble, you know, a well-intended but bumbling um, parent is not 90% males as dads that are looked at that way, but 100% males when there's only one parent being portrayed as a jerk 100% of the time on your advertising. Um, it is the male being portrayed as some version of the jerk or a well-intended but bumbling sort of quasi-idiot, if you will. And so we've gone to from father knows best to fathers know less as in our media images of dads. And so it's the dad image that has really been um, neglected. That said, there is recently an increasing number of positive father images in advertising and that's um, and, and that's but there's nothing close to what i feel needs to happen uh, when i spoke to the, when i briefed the white house uh, the the white house when i briefed the white house on the boy crisis book uh, one of the things i talked with them about is developing a father warrior program w a r r not warrior um, but warrior program um, to encourage boys to um, overcome the social biases uh, that it takes uh, to become to be valued as a dad uh, right now if you if a, if a girl in college or a young woman in college uh, approaches a male in college at a at a party let's say and she says, oh, you know, what's, you know, what are you um, planning to do when you get out of college? And he says, oh, I want to be a full-time dad. Uh, she's, you know, she's likely to find a journalist um, in, the, in the room to come back and interview him. 
um, but she's li likely to not come back for a second drink herself. And so the guy gets the hint that, you know, um, an aspiration to be a full-time dad or uh, while the woman goes off and maybe earns the primary source of income or all the source of income, uh, that's a role that would be perfectly fine for her to play. And he will be still attracted to her if she says she wants to be the primary parent. Uh, but very few, he, he gets it that very few women are gonna come back and, um, and want to be uh, with him if that's what he states as his life goal. I have a friend who's a full-time dad and the wife works and they've been together for 12 years, 13 years and happily married. So uh, uh, are you starting to see an increase in that? And if yes, why? Yes, there is an increase in that, fortunately. Why though? And I, was that? Why? Why is that happening? Because there is an increased amount. Well, first of all, um, we are now at a place where two out of three of the people who graduate from college are female. Yep. Not, not 60-40. 60-40 are the ones that enter college, but among college graduates, the ratio is two yep. female to one male. Um, so 60-40 get into college, but men, uh, males in college are much less likely to graduate from college for a lot of reasons, but the emphasis, the, the end product is uh, the women were, were twice as likely to have young women who are recent college graduates um, than we are a male who's a recent college graduate. So the, the female is oftentimes um, has available to her men who may be good looking, may be taller than she, um, but she knows that she's going to be earning more money than he. And so uh, then a big issue, a big issue happens. Um, if she wants to be a have it all woman and she's really interested in, um, you know, in developing, um, you know, breaking a glass ceiling, uh, she knows that to do that, but she usually wants to have to be a have it all woman. She wants to be happily married and she wants to have children and children that are well raised. Um, so she begins to adjust to say, well, one way that I can do that is to marry a man uh, who is a nurturer connector type of man as opposed to a provider protector type of man. And, um, but um, oftentimes, and she does that, and the marriage will, that type of marriage, that is a woman who's the primary breadwinner and a man who's home taking care of the children, um, if she re truly respects him, that marriage has a high percentage chance of working out very well. Uh, so two things, three things have to be in place. She has to really want to be a career person and want to have a lot of her approval and respect for the career person. She has to adjust ahead of time to the fact that the man that a man, she can respect a man who's taking care of the children well, taking care of the social schedule, cooking the dinners well, and so on. And if she loses respect for him, if she, if she gets attracted to another man at work who's really successful, who also seems to be attracted to her, that can make her divided in her love and the marriage will very frequently end. Um, but if she um, has the fortitude to know that the reason she has a happy marriage and, um, and the man is raising children, that men will only do that um, with gusto if they feel the respect from their wives. Uh, because almost every man instinctively knows that a woman who does not respect a man is not able to love that man. So, so in a case of uh, Jeff Bezos uh, uh, and McKinsey, 
you have a uh, McKinsey married to a guy who is now the richest man in the world, and they get a divorce. And she goes and marries a school teacher, a guy named Dan, I don't know, Jewett or some, some you, know, uh, you know, nice guy, I'm sure, but he's a school teacher. So you go from here to here. Is there, is there also an element of, I am so burned out with being with a driven alpha guy that I just want a regular guy. Like, you know how we go through a breakup? We're dramatic, right? We'll go from somebody that is, you know, driven, competitive. You're like, oh, my gosh, she's so attractive to me and overbearing. You're like, I just want to date a regular girl. And then you're like, oh, my gosh, I'm so bored. And you go back to this. Why, why do we, why do we, and the reason why I ask this question from you is because you brought up your first wife, and I think your first wife was a mathematician. I may be wrong. I think she was a mathematician, or either you were a mathematician or she was a mathematician. And you guys were married for nine, for ten years. You spoke very highly about her here on the, uh, uh, you know, uh, interview. And then your second wife, I think, you guys have been together for twenty years now. I, I, I want to say it's twenty years, give or take, a little over twenty years. So, where do we get marriage wrong? Like. I don't even know if most most men even know, like, the purpose of getting married, like, what we're looking for. Are we confused half the time when we're getting married? Yes, to be fair and honest, um, both sexes tend to fall in love with the members of the other sex who yeah. are the who are often opposites and, and often the least capable of loving them. Uh, so men fall in love with beautiful younger women who are less mature uh, than they are and end up um, being very highly, you know, look up, look, looking up to the man at the beginning and we feel really proud and approved of and so on. Uh, but then it turns out that uh, the, we're a little bit disgusted at their lack of maturity and they're disgusted at, at our uh, propensity for dominating and um, and having all the answers and the more mature she becomes, the more she wants to have inequality in the relationship, which was different from the dynamic that attracted the two of them. But there's a, there's a lot of bigger issues that often happen here too. So in the Jeff Bezos case, I don't know the situation personally, but normally speaking, or very frequently as a sort of model, um, the, uh, the woman will initially be attracted to a man who is very successful, powerful, um, confident in himself, able to be, has a sense of efficacy. Um, and so, um, but she doesn't realize that it's, ex um, but that it's exactly those characteristics that will lead to their divorce. Here's why. So um, what both sexes have an equal need for is a need to feel heard and understood. But as the male um, uh, who is successful becomes more and more successful, he often learns a series of behaviors that are, uh, that are, that help him become successful at work that is, are exactly the behaviors that lead him to be unsuccessful in love. So for example, let's say you're a CEO and you're looking for um, a, a, a new type of plane and you get um, a salesperson trying to sell you a special engine um, that they have for a new plane that, will, that they say will be perfect for you. Well, as, as a CEO, you're listening to that um, salesperson speak and you're thinking to yourself, okay, is this salesperson as um, convincing as another salesperson I had before? And should I also interview somebody else? Uh, will this work for my Chinese market? Uh, will this work for these infrastructure that I already have set up for my Chinese market? Uh, will this, um, you know, and, and is asking a hundred questions like this while the person is talking. Um, and so that person, the, a good CEO has learned to self-listen 
um, to, to be juggling the listening process with the, uh, with the yes, but process or what about process and the cross-examination process. That skill set for the good CEO becomes so ingrained that when he takes that, that skill set home, and by the way, this can sometimes be happened to women as well, um, not as frequently, but I'll explain why both frequently and not frequently. So the, the male sales, uh, the male CEO comes home and his wife says, you know, I've had a really difficult day at work or I've had a dif difficult yeah. day with the children or something's happened in the family. And, um, and the, the male sees his wife, the woman he loves, the woman he'd probably die for, um, to is having a problem. And so our instinct when our wife is having a problem is to, while she's talking, to figure out a solution. Because instinctively, when our wife, who I, we love, is bleeding to death, the only way to handle that is to solve the problem, to get the Band-Aids on her quickly, to get it to the emergency room quickly. And so um, we, we're, we're behaving with our wife in a way that is looking for the solution while she's talking. Very few CEOs or top level entrepreneurs realize that there is a solution for your wife's complaints and challenges, and that is to listen. Not only listen by keeping your mouth shut, but also listen by when she's finished the complaining, not coming up with a solution, but rather saying, so sweetie, what I heard you say was, was this is, and then asking, is that accurate? And then if she says, no, actually, it's mostly accurate. Thank you for listening. But I, I think you got this wrong. Not saying, no, no, I said that. Uh, not becoming defensive about what she feels we got wrong, but being right in there saying, so it's not what I said, but it's this. Is that correct? And then she goes, yes, that's correct. Okay, did I miss anything in uh, understanding what you're saying? Um, yes, I think you missed this. No, no, no. I think I got that. I said that because this. No, shut your mouth. Listen, work on what she feels you missed because the only thing that counts is what she feels that you've missed. And then when she begins to feel safe because you didn't distort anything and you didn't miss anything, say, is there anything new that you'd like to add? That leads to a woman or when a woman does the same thing for a man in reverse, that leads to your partner feeling heard. But the great majority of men move to fixing the problem as opposed to understanding that you can fix the problem by not fixing the problem. The fixing of the problem is the listening process. Hearing um, and then letting your wife or your daughter or your son um, say, here's what I heard you say, son, daughter, wife, uh, mom, dad, um, and then mom and dad, daughter, wife, uh, son feels really heard and then did I and being open to anything you distorted open to anything that you missed and so this is what I teach in my couples communication courses in much greater depth than I've explained here and invariably one of the men in the course will say well no I'm not really fixing it then I'm not really attending to the, her, her real needs she's hurting why am I not solving the problem for her and I have to work with him and hearing the listening process in the way I just described it is the solution. The fixing of it leaves your wife, children, or parents feeling unheard. People need to be heard before they are asking for a solution beyond being heard. 
So let me let me ask you a question. I think I'm getting a read on what you're saying. Are you insinuating that we should add term limits to marriage? Absolutely not. Um, the term limit sh to marriage should be, there should be no term limit to marriage. The like ideal talking, like you get married four years and you campaign with all the family. I think we should go one more four years. You, you, are you saying that's a good idea, term limits? Yeah, so you can do it that way. But I think the, the um, I, I think it's the second best way of doing it. I think the best. <laughs> I'm giving you a hard time. I'm giving you no, a hard I mean, time. let's let's put it this way. I was I was involved with my wife for 27 years, and we took eight years before we decided to uh, we actually got married. And during those sort of um, first eight years, it was sort of like you know re-examining whether this was the right person for us. We were very different people, and so we really needed my couples communication course to really hear each other really well, uh, in order to see that um, the differences made much less differences a difference in the love we had. Then, um, 17 years ago, we got married, married, and my attitude when I got married, I'm in this forever. Um, you know, there's no, uh, I may find another woman attractive, but I've made my commitment and, and that level of commitment that I made when I got married really was meaningful to me. And there's, there are things that happened in the ceremony of marriage. In the ceremony of marriage, you bring the people you love and care for around you. Uh, they see you make that commitment. When you make that commitment and you see the people you love, uh, see you make that commitment, something changes in your brain. Your RCZ, your rostral cingulate zone in your brain, um, is, is knowing that the people who you love are approving of you getting married and they will approve of you more when you remain married. And that gives you a little extra oomph to go through the hard times um, to, um, to, to work things through that are, that are challenging. And then we had the couples communication course where, where the, 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 a very disciplined process of teaching men and women how to listen to each other uh, that goes beyond anything that Got I've it. seen um, so far. So let me, um, is if you don't mind us going to the, 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 cause I only have like seven minutes and I want to make sure I get these two other questions in there as well. Uh, in, on the, in the area of pay gap, so, you know, it's, it's a very common debate that you always hear on the political side that happens, well, women are not getting paid, it's not fair, it's not this. So one side says female athletes should get paid as much as uh, male athletes, and then uh, the argument will be made is female athletes in certain sports, like gymnastics is more, but maybe in basketball it's not more, doesn't get as many viewership as male athletes do. W where did this pay gap uh, argument come in, and does it have any credence uh, and if it does in certain industry, is there some areas where it has no credence in? Yes. Well, first of all, th this is such an important question that I literally wrote an entire book to answer this question uh, called Why Men Earn More, The Startling Truth Behind the Pay Gap and What Women Can Do About It. And the most important part of why men earn more, I think, is my discussion of the 25 differences between what men do in the workplace and in their work-life balance and what women do in their work-life balance. So some quick insights, never married men and never married women who have never had children, the never married women out earn the never married men by 17% and the never married women who have never had children have out earned the never married men who have never had children 
since the 70s. Wow. What so that gives you some sense that it, the pay gap predominantly is not just about these 20, is about these 25 huh. different um, decisions yeah. that men and women make, but it's usually not just men and women or single men and women. It is rather married men and women with children. The pay gap is much, much less about men and women than it is about dads versus moms. When dads become dads, they tend to um, give up jobs that they are fulfilling that pay less. They love being an elementary school teacher, but they realize that being a superintendent of schools or a principal will pay them twice as much even though they hate administration. So they give up becoming that passionate elementary school teacher to do something that will support their family better. They love being a musician, an artist, a writer, or an actor, um, but they all pay very little and starving artists. So they give up those gigs and that those passions of fulfillment to, pay, to get something that pays more. The, the more fulfilling the job, the less it pays on average. The road to high pay is a toll road. Men, when they become, when they're just men who are who don't have children, they they want to do what's fulfilling, like women do. But when when they have children, they're willing to give up doing what's fulfilling to and look about the things that pay more, that they may like a lot less, that they usually do like a lot less, work more hours than they want to work because their job is no longer to please themselves. Their job is to make sure that their wife and children are secure, can move to good neighborhoods with good schools, and that their wife, that their children have opportunities that they've never had as a result of those sacrifices. And so that's where the pay gap resides. And if you wish to really understand the pay gap, look at those 25 differences in work-life choices, and I'll exp explain in the Why Men Earn More book exactly what those differences are worth financially and why the great majority of men uh, do work that they like less that earns more and the great majority of women are more likely to do more fulfilling jobs that earn less. And if you really do want to earn more, uh, you can look at any of those 25 um, careers and jobs and decisions that men and women make uh, that lead to earning more money. But usually the earning of more money leads to less fulfillment. So I asked, I asked you earlier, I said, our goal on today's Zoom is to be able to solve the boy crisis in 59 minutes. I think we're making some progress. I don't know what you say about that, but I think we made some progress today. Doc, I appreciate you for uh, getting on the Zoom here. I've really enjoyed talking to you. We're gonna put the link below to your book, uh, The Boy Crisis, uh, below for people to be able to find it. We'll also put the link to your website where folks can go and find you. But with that being said, thank you so much for your time and being a guest on Valuetainment. It's a total pleasure. I also want to say that a lot of men tell me that they commute or they're working out of the gym and the audible version is really more helpful for them to take in the um, the um, the Boy Crisis book. Fantastic. We'll put the link below. Thank you. Very great to take talk. care. Really Bye -bye. Good. So do you think there's a boy crisis? Yes, there is. Thumbs up. No, I don't think there's a boy crisis. Thumbs down. Uh, but I thought it was very interesting seeing his perspective. If you want to get his book, we'll put the link below. If you enjoyed this interview, I did another interview with Jordan Peterson. This was uh, at the same event when I interviewed Kobe, the late Kobe Bryant and George Bush. If you've never seen this interview with Jordan Peterson, it's a must watch. Click over to watch it. And if you haven't subscribed to the channel, please do so. Thanks for watching, everybody. Take care. Bye-bye.